Go ahead and grab a seat. There's no easy way to transition from coming awake than to give you the noise of all noises that is super annoying. You know that noise. It's when you're watching TV, you're, you're watch, listening to the radio, and out of nowhere it starts by going, and it seems to go on forever, and then it's followed with a deep, booming voice that says, this was a test of the emergency broadcast system. Had this been a real emergency after the attention signal you just heard would be followed by information, news, or instruction related to a real emergency, this was only a test. I actually went on YouTube to watch that. What is wrong with me? <laughs> See, it's only a test until it's no longer a test. It's only an annoying noise that you would tune out and turn out and turn the channel, do whatever you can so you don't have to hear it until it comes the time where it's the most important noise to get your attention. And I can remember as I was growing up, I lived in Colorado, and, and it seemed that during the summertime, during my favorite cartoons, that test would come on all the time. But only one time, it wasn't a test. And so what happens is that emergency broadcast system prepares you, where you're waiting, you're eagerly waiting for the end of that annoying noise to hear this was a test. But just that one time. And for me, as I was growing up, it seemed to be more frequently as they came out with tornado warnings or different weather advice that was coming. That noise prepared the listener for action. That noise prepared you to listen up, to tune in, to hear what was it that was going to come next. We were prepared for action. And in the same way, in the text that we're going to chew on this morning, we're looking at how we as believers, how we need to be prepared for action and how that preparedness prepares us for a hope for holiness. And so if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here at First Baptist, and it's a privilege to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Um, Pastor Brad started a new series with us last week called Renewing Your Hope. And last week, Brad spoke on finding hope in the midst of discouragement. And if you missed his message last week, I want to encourage you to go on our website, listen to it, as it sets the tone for our entire series and is a great message, in particular, if you're wrestling with discouragement in your life. In today's text, um, what, do, what happens is Peter transitions the reader's attention from dealing with or talking with our future inheritance to now very practical, rubber meets the road of how do we live our lives in a holy way. So we're going to start out in verse 13 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. And so the very first word that we see there in verse 13 is the word therefore. And any time that you're reading scripture or you're looking at it, any time you see that phrase therefore, you want to pause. You want to look and you want to say, okay God, what is this therefore, therefore? And so in this instance here is, is Peter is transitioning us from one way of thinking to now how is it that we actually live it out. And that's what we're going to wrestle with together as literally we go through four action-packed verses together this morning. So read along with me as it says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
So if you have your outline with you this morning, the first point that I have for you on there is that preparation leads to self-control. Preparation leads to self-control. And if you look at verse 13, Peter says immediately there, prepare your mind, your mind for action. The NIV translates it as, with minds that are alert. So how do we do that? What does that look like? How do we prepare our minds for an action that God is calling us to do? Well, what does preparation actually mean? Listen to what Webster's defines preparation as. Webster's defines it as to make beforehand for some purpose, use, or activity. To put in a proper state of mind. To get ready. So as we start our time together this morning, friend... Are you ready for the race that God has called you to run? Are you prepared? Or are you more content, kind of hiding in the background? Hiding where maybe you won't be noticed or nobody will know your story. Are you more ill-prepared than you are prepared for action? Are you tuned out to the voice of God? See, the King James Version of this exact same verse 13 translates it like this. Gird up the loins of your mind. What a great phrase that is. Gird up the loins of your mind. And see, this this phrase paints a vivid picture for Peter's readers in his day. Because men in Peter's day would have worn long, flowing robes that would have gone down to here. But because they had a robe, it would have made it hard for them to be able to run or do any strenuous type of activity. And so with their robes, they wore a belt or a a larger um, kind of thing, like like a belt that's called a girdle. And what they would do is, when they were going to do a strenuous action or even go to war, they would take and they would pull up that robe and they would hook it inside that girdle or inside that belt so that they could freely move around so that they could be ready for action. And if we were to take that same phrase and put it in a modern sense, it would be like you saying, I'm going to roll up my sleeves or I'm going to take off my jacket and get ready for action. See, being prepared for action literally means that we are prepared for whatever this world or the evil one throws our way. Being prepared means that we are both spiritually and mentally prepared for persecution. Being spiritually and mentally prepared for whatever trials are going to come your way, and my way. And I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news that if today you are not in the midst of trials, it's not if they're going to come, but when they come. So are you prepared? Are you ready for those, my friend? Are you in a place in your relationship with God to be able to weather the storm or the persecution that is going to come your way? John MacArthur says this, when he talks about girding up our minds. He describes it like tying up the loose ends or the loose thoughts in our minds. Spurgeon describes it by saying, pulling ourselves together. And if I was to say it in my great vocabulary, is it's time to roll up your sleeves and get to work. See, Peter is telling his audience, as he is telling every single one of us here today, is that we must be ready for action. That we must be ready or not content with the flabby or unexamined faith. That we must pray, that we must think about things, that we must allow God to see them in us and through us. Let me illustrate it for you like this. If you tomorrow 
were to have a job interview and you really wanted that job, like you were excited, you're ready for a new chapter, you wouldn't go into that job interview ill-prepared. No, what you would do is you would take the time to think about all the different questions that they might ask you in the interview. In your mind, you would roll through all the different answers, the way that you would answer this, that, and the other. You would think about your weaknesses, and you'd say, how can you twist those into a strength? As you think about that organization that you're wanting to go and work for, you would want to tell them how all of your experience will bring value to them. Because if you really wanted that job, If you really wanted that new opportunity, you would go into that interview as prepared as possible. Prepared for action. And in the exact same way, if we are going to renew our hope fully on the God that created the heavens and the earth, it requires preparation and resolve. See, setting your hope fully on the grace to come is an act of faith that requires renewed thinking, disciplined thinking, and disciplined acting, said differently. If we are to set our hope on the grace that is yet to be revealed to us through Christ, we need to prepare ourselves with a proper spiritual mindset, with a firm, faithful resolve, not in our own strength, but in the strength that comes through Jesus Christ. Hear this, friend. Both mental and spiritual laziness leads to moral carelessness because loose thinking leads to loose living. Peter explains that one way for action, being prepared for action, is to be sober-minded, whereas the New Living Translation describes it or translates it as exercising self-control. The Greek word that Peter uses here is nepho. And just like the English word sober, it can have two different meanings. It can mean that one must refrain from drunkenness in a literal sense of terms. And it also can mean that one needs to have a clarity or a steady of their mind. Said differently. One must neither be intoxicated with intoxicating liquid nor intoxicating thoughts. They must preserve a balanced judgment both in their body and in their mind. This last fall, I was able to take my five-year-old son, Elliot, to a 49ers game. And we're Bronco fans, so we knew the 49ers were going to lose anyways, so we were in no hurry to get there. And so uh, we got to the stadium, and, and everybody's rushing to get in there, and, well, we're taking our time. And so uh, my little son, he loves to suck his thumb, so he's just walking, looking around, soaking in the whole scene. As soon as we got to the stadium, I kind of walk him around, let him see everything at Levi Stadium. It's a pretty cool place. And, and we walk up to the concession stand, and I say, son, whatever you want, you can get. It's because I know he can't read, so he's only going to pick the things he can see. <laughs> They're cheaper that way. And so he's standing there, and he's looking at it, and he's kind of overwhelmed by the whole scene. And, and he sees hot dogs there. He's like, daddy, I want a hot dog. All right, son, you can have a hot dog. So we're standing there. The line's taking forever. It's costing me more money the longer we're standing there. And he said, Daddy, I want some popcorn, too. All right, son, you can get some popcorn, too. So he has his hot dog in one hand and this bag of popcorn, literally as big as him. He is in his other hand. And and we're walking. He's got a big old smile on his face. He's excited. We're at a football game because this was his very first professional sporting event. And so we make it our way through the crowd. We get down to our seats. They were amazing seats. And as we sit down, 
the magnitude of the stadium just takes his attention and his awe. And so while he has a hot dog in one hand, popcorn in the other hand, he's sitting there like this. (laughs) And the kid doesn't move forever. And as we're sitting there, I notice that there's some people around us who have had more than their fair share of beers already. And they're getting a little bit louder. They're getting rambunctious. They're saying some things that we don't necessarily talk about in church. My son hasn't noticed yet. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this giant of a man, two seats over from us, jumps up out of his seat, turns around to the guy behind him, and starts screaming and yelling and saying all of these terrible things. And I'm skinny little me, pulling my son next to me, covering his little ears, trying to protect him. As one man and another man start screaming and yelling and saying all kinds of terrible things that they're about to do to one another. These men lack self-control. These men lacked sobriety. And they're yelling and they're screaming. And now this entire giant section of the stadium is no longer watching the 49ers lose. They're wanting to see what's going to happen in this fight. And so you fast forward, um, the police end up having to come and escort them out of there, and and we sit there, we enjoy the rest of the game. And finally, we get in the truck, and we're on our way home, and we say, hey, buddy, let's call mom and and tell her we're on our way home. And so uh, we get on the phone, and and what's the first question that mom's going to ask? Hey, what did you think of the game? And my son pulls his thumb out of his mouth, and he says, I don't know about the game, but the fight was really cool, mom. And see, for my son, he had a positive outlook on the situation. But for those men that lack self-control, those men that lack sobriety, what do you think their response would have been when their wife asked them how their game was? When their friends the next day at work asked them what the game was like for them? See, because their lack of self-control, their lack of sobriety ruined the game for themselves and quite honestly ruined part of the game for everyone else around them. A lack of sobriety, a lack of self-control can impact everybody's lives. And for you, a lack of self-control in your life can ruin your day. It can steal your hope. It can twist your view of reality and quite honestly and quite practically, a lack of self-control in your life can quite literally ruin your life. So what about you? Have you had times recently where your lack of self-control has inversely infected your life? Maybe you're here today, and if you were honest with yourself, uh, you would have to acknowledge that you have an issue being sober-minded. Because you used to enjoy the bottle for entertainment and and just a time of, of having fun and had it in moderation. But now that bottle owns you. And instead of relying on the calming power of the Holy Spirit, you rely on the calming power of Budweiser or Coors or whatever your bottle of choice is. And as a result of the influence of alcohol or drugs, your heart and your thought life has been slowly fading away from God's best in your life. If you're here today and alcohol or drugs own you, I want to tell you as your pastor and as your friend, that's not the way God intended it. God did not intend for you to be in bondage with a bottle or with drugs. And if you're in that place, can I implore you, can I challenge you, can I insult you in such a way that you put the bottle down and you seek out help? And whether that help is with the friend that brought you today or whether it's going out and seeking out a group, even like what we have here, which is called First Baptist Celebrates Recovery. 
Will you bring a group of like-minded people to come alongside you, to encourage you, to keep you accountable as you take steps away from that influence and you're influenced by Jesus Christ? But maybe for you, your lack of self-control doesn't have to do with alcohol or drugs. Um, maybe it's what you do with your body. Maybe you're in a dating relationship and you lack self-control with your, your mate. And you're doing things with your body that does not honor God. And maybe it's time for you to stop. Maybe for you, your lack of self-control has to do with those snacks, those extra meals, those extra things that you find uh, enticing to you and comforting. And it's time for you to stay away from those so that you can find that you can have a healthy temple of the Holy Spirit. Maybe for you, your lack of self-control comes in the form of what comes out of your mouth. Maybe it's the vocabulary that you choose that although you might not use those words in this circle, you certainly use them in every other circle and it's ruining your witness. Or maybe, maybe just for you, and let me speak to church people here for just a second because we're really good at this one. Maybe your lack of self-control comes in those choice morsels of gossip and you cover them with that thinly veiled of, let me tell you about this prayer request of so-and-so. But it's your way of sharing the juicy details that is their story to share, and it's not your story to share. And so you use it as gossip, and you use it to share with other people. Maybe your lack of self-control has to do with your wallet. And maybe you have the inability to be able to say no to more for yourself, more excess. Or maybe it's for your kids or your grandkids, and you don't know how to tell your kids enough is enough. And as a result, every time you go to the mailbox and you see the American Express bill or Visa or MasterCard, your heart starts to sink and you wonder, how is it that I'm ever going to be able to pay this off? Oh yes, a lack of self-control, a lack of sober thinking rears its ugly head in so many different ways in our lives today. Friend, remember that there is a battle that is going on. Not a battle of flesh and blood, but a battle that is targeting you and it's targeting me. It's targeting our witness and it's targeting our relationship with Almighty God. And the more that you lack in the self-control department, the more distance that you're going to create between you and God, and the harder it is for you to be able to hear that still, soft voice of God speaking into your heart and into your life. I read a blog this past week written by a man named Kenny Luck, who's the founder of Every Man Ministries, and, and the title of his blog was The Cult of Culture, How to Get Out of This World. Listen to what part of what he wrote. He says, watch out for the world. It's after you. It wants you in its cult following, wooing you with pleasures and power, fame and fortune, the nexus of excess. The cult of our culture provides the perfect distraction from what's really important, and it lures us with empty lusts, beliefs, and religions. It may not seem like an organized cult, but behind the apparent chaos and disorder is an enemy who's pulling the strings to entangle our mind, body, and soul. It's easy to overlook that we are targeted and marked with an endless desires to capture your time, energy, and money. The world wants your worship, so you don't worship the one who deserves it the most. Friends, as we take steps towards holiness and renewing our hope, we need to practice self-control in our lives. Self-control, after all, is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control in our thought life. Self-control in how we spend our time. Self-control in the words that come out of our mouths. Self-control in every aspect of our lives. One commentator put it this way. He says, to set our hope fully, we need to be sober in our thinking, 
not drunk on the promises or priorities of this world, but be clear-sighted in who God is and all that he gives. The battle to live well begins with a rightly directed hope, which requires clear thinking. That is what enables us to live the way that Christ followers that we have been called to live. Preparation leads to self-control. Secondly, self-control leads to obedience. Self-control leads to obedience. In verse 14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. See, in, in biblical language, to be a child of something is to be controlled by something. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. The Greek word that Peter uses to describe obedience is hypokaiē which means to be in compliance or submission. Quite literally, it means to be obedient. It's a vivid and beautiful picture of submitting or serving someone in authority over us. My wife and I have five children, and we spend our time teaching our children about obedience, teaching them what it means to be obedient, first of all, to mom and dad, but even more importantly, to the teachings of God's word. Because we know as mom and dad that obedience will affect every aspect of their lives as they grow older. Yes, today it affects their schoolwork. Tomorrow it will affect their workplace or their marriage or anyone else they interact with. And most importantly of all, obedience will affect their relationship with God. See, a fruit of obedience or maturity is, the fruit of maturity is obedience. And in the same way, as followers of Christ, when we grow spiritually, when we grow in our knowledge and understanding of God's word and his plan for our lives, we grow more in obedience as a result. Verse 14 continues by saying, not conforming yourself to the passions of your former ignorance. It starts by saying, not conforming. Look at that. That's not in a past tense, but that is in a current tense. Which means if we're not going to conform today, means that we need to change today. Whatever activity it is that is drawing our attention. See, to conform means to fit into some specific mold. To pattern one's life after another. Romans chapter 12 verse 2. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. What does it mean to renew your mind? When you renew your mind, you spend time opening up God's love letter and allowing him to speak into your heart and into your life. It means that you spend deliberate time actually praying, not for yourself, but sitting there in silence so that the still, soft voice of God can be heard in your spirit. Renewing your mind means that you spend less time allowing the culture to tune and conform your worldview, and that you allow the God that created the heavens and the earth to conform you into his pattern and into his will, and then you'll be able to test and approve, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. Listen to the paraphrase that uh, J.B. Phillips does for Romans chapter 12. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold but allow God to remold you from within. When you really think about it, Peter's statement here, it packs such a powerful punch. Not conforming ourselves to the passions of our former ignorance forces us to wrestle with our own sinful nature. 
It forces us to think about who we were before we knew Christ. What was our life like back then? And what is it like now? What is those things that we used to do or enjoy or drew us away from God? How is that slowly seeping into our life today? What sinful desire within you continues to well up inside you today? See, when you look up the word lust, lust refers to a strong desire to do or secure something. James, in his letter in chapter 1, verse 14, calls us to control those lusts. He says, but each person who is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I'm reading a, a shocking statistic or study from Proven Men's Ministry, which is a ministry that focuses on sexual issues in men. The study found that 77% of Christian men surveyed between the ages of 18 and 30 look at pornography at least once a month. That's a huge problem. That's not in the world. That's in the church. Gentlemen, let me talk to you for a moment. And I know this isn't a subject that often comes up in church, but it's a subject that obviously is taking and entangling men, men of honor, men of integrity, and drawing you away from God's best for your life. If you are a man that is struggling with pornography as your pastor and as your friend, can I tell you to get rid of your computer, to get rid of your phone, to turn off the internet, to go to somebody else in your life and tell them, look, I have a problem here, will you keep me accountable? I have a gentleman who's done just that. And literally two years ago, he came to me and said, Pastor Scott, I have a problem with pornography. Can you keep me accountable? And off and on as I see him, I ask him, how are you doing? There's times that I call him because he gave me that privilege to speak into his life. And do you know what's happened in his life as a result of him taking and allowing light to shine on that dark sin? It's not happening as much. I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all. But it's a sin that is slowly being removed out of his life. And so, gentlemen, if you have an issue with viewing pornography in your life, let me challenge you, even after the service today or this week, to talk with Pastor Derek, who's our men's ministry pastor. He'd love to connect you with the ministry we have here called Pure Desire. It's a ministry that is set apart to be able to help you get away from that sin that so easily entangles one man after another. When you look at the context of 1 Peter, remember that Peter's letter is written to believers that are going through struggles and trials. And when we're hurting, it's easy to let our guard down. And Job, he knew that he was vulnerable in this area as well. So in Job 31.1, listen to what he says. He says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. In short, we're not to go back and do what we used to do because we're no, no longer who we used to be. I love the song by Brandon Heath. It's titled, I'm Not Who I Was. Listen to one of the songs from his song, one of the lines from his song. It says, I wish you could see me now. I wish I could show you how I'm not who I was. This means that we don't go back to who we were. Don't go back to the life spent, spent satisfying our fleshly, sinful desires. Peter in his text here says, your former lusts. The key word there is former, in the past. See, this doesn't just refer to sexual lust. And I know I went down that road with gentlemen, 
but it's a, a thing that happens for every single one of us. These former desires are evil desires, behaviors that once marked who we were, but it doesn't define who we are or who we are becoming in Christ Jesus. Because remember, you are a child of God. You have been taught, you have been trained, you have been challenged, and we know better now. We know the ways of the Lord by reading in his word, and our Father leads us and he guides us into a perfect will for our lives And Peter is challenging you, he's imploring you, he's lovingly telling you, don't return to your old way. See, when we live as obedient children, we will not conform to our former lusts. Consider what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, now we must put away them all, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from our mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Let me recap this for you. If you do not gird up your mind, if you do not prepare your mind for action, if you are not living soberly with self-control, you won't be able to live as an obedient child, but as an obedient child to Almighty God. We must guard ourselves from falling into the former lusts of our ignorance. Maybe you have. Perhaps you made that confession of faith. Maybe it's been a year, two years, five years, where you've said, you know what, I'm going to give my entire life over to Jesus. I'm going to be a changed person. And for a while, you were absolutely that changed person. Your circle of friends changed. The words that were coming out of your mouth were, oh, praise God, not as much as some of those other things. You were opening up God's word. You were praying. You would come to church on Sunday. Your arms would be raised and you would say, God, thank you for changing me. And time went on. Tick, tock, tick, tock. And you slowly faded back to where you were. And you slowly found yourself getting entangled with some of those things that you didn't used to do. But now they've got you right back And if you were honest with yourself, your life today looks no different than it did pre-Christ. Let me flip the coin for just a second. Um, Maybe you're one of those people that you either were raised in the church or you've been a Christian for so long that you have a hard time remembering what it was like to be a Christian, to be a non-Christian. So let me ask you it in a different way. How does your life look different than a non-Christian? If your secret sins, if your thought life, those thought bubbles that come up out of your head, if they were to be known, would you look any different than the non-Christian who's at the bar right now than the Christian who's at church today? Sadly, statistics say, and just what I've seen in my life as a pastor, so often we don't look much different from the world out there. Someone once said that you can take an old hog You can scrub her up and you can hose her down. But as soon as you tune her loose and and let her out, she's going to go right back to that mud because that is what she knows. That's what she likes and that's what she wants. It makes me think of the Proverbs 26, 11 that says like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. See, your flesh wants what it always has wanted. And if you do not take the proper steps to guard against the flesh, you will do exactly like that pig or exactly like the dog in the proverb, and you will resort back to who you once were. 
But Peter says it so clearly to you, Christian and non-Christian alike. Do not slip into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. Preparation leads to self-control. Self-control leads to obedience. And obedience leads to holiness. We see this in verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Look at how verse 15 starts. It starts with the word, but. Which indicates a very clear contrast for us. Peter gives us in the first two verses of our text today, in verses 13 and 14, how we're supposed to live. And then verse 15 and 16 gives us the fruit of those actions being holiness. In verse 15, Peter so clearly states for us the standard by which our thought life, by our actions, everything about us, our goals should be based on. Our standard for living is not by what our world says is important, by that of Christ Jesus as our model himself. Since Jesus was holy, shouldn't our goal be holiness as well? See, when Peter writes this, there's a sense of urgency behind there. And he says, be holy, not in the future, but now. See, the holiness attribute of God is the only attribute in Scripture that we, receive, we see repeated consecutively in a row. Now, we know that one of the attributes of God is love, but we don't see in Scripture love, love, love. We see another attribute of God being grace, but it's not repeated of grace, grace, grace. But the attribute of God of holiness is the one that we see repeated over and over throughout Scripture in three tenses. In fact, when you look at Isaiah chapter 6, the angels declare, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That phrase, be holy for I am holy, is also found in Leviticus chapter 11 verse 44 and several other passages. And Peter sandwiches between that first one, he who called you is holy, and for I am holy, two very key essentials. He says, be holy in your conduct and simply and clearly. Be holy. Unfortunately, right here in this room, many of you think that it's absolutely impossible to be holy in every aspect of your life. And when you get outside of the safety of a church and you look on the outside, those people that view holiness, they view that as more of a, a, a holy roller type of thing or a religious nerd, not something that is something we should be aiming for. See, some see holiness as a vice, not as a virtue. See, when you really think about it, it's hard to wrap your mind and your hands around what is holiness. But holiness essentially means that we in our lives are to reflect who God is. It should be in our conduct, or as J.B. Phillips paraphrased, be holy in every department of your life. See, holiness is not compartmentalized on Sunday from 9.30 to about 11, but holiness is every aspect of your life, and it is all-encompassing. It's to be lived out. 
See, being holy in every department of your life means every aspect of your life. It means what you choose to watch on the TV. It means what you choose to be holy and where you go on the internet. It means that you're holy with your telephone or whatever apps and all that you do on your phone. It means that if you're in a dating relationship, that you're holy in that dating relationship. If you're married, it means that you act holy in your marriage relationship and towards your spouse. It means that you're holy in all of your time, not just some of your time. You use it for God's glory. It means in the music that you choose to listen to that you're holy with what comes into your mind and what comes out of your mouth. It means that you're holy with your money. It means that you're holy with your sports. It means that you're holy at home, that you're holy at work, that you're holy behind the wheel of your car, that you're holy every single where, everywhere that you go. And most of all, and most of all, Be holy in your thoughts and be holy in everything that you do. Let me illustrate it for you like this. As your pastor, if today you were to go out to lunch and you were to see me with my family at my favorite restaurant like Chipotle or Dickie's, and um, you were to see us, and as they bring the food back, if I was acting like a complete fool and moron, throwing the food, I can't believe this service here, and making an absolute fool of myself, what would you think? Or what if, uh, uh, what if you saw me walking out of whatever restaurant you see and you see me just stumbling around because I've drank so much that I can't even walk? What would you think? Or what if you saw me and, and, and you heard that uh, I spend my Saturday evenings up at the Jackson Rancheria trying to double my salary on the roulette wheel or playing blackjack? Still wouldn't win a lot. <laughs> but what do you think about that? How would you view me? See, you would view me as a pastor. You view me as having a higher standard, first of all, because it represents Jesus, and second of all, it represents our church. But did you know that you, my friend, are called to live by the exact, let me say that again, by the exact same standard as you want your pastors and your staff to live by as well. Because holiness isn't based on a job title. Holiness is based on a relationship, and it's your relationship with God that you're accountable for, not mine. But yet in the same way, in the same way, holiness isn't convenient. It's not always the easiest thing. But holiness is something that is our target that we are aiming for on a moment-by-moment basis. And friend, if you're going to renew your hope, we must renew our hope through holiness. Preparation leads to self-control. Self-control leads to obedience. Obedience leads to holiness. And my last point I have for your outline today is that holiness only comes through by grace and by faith. Mother Teresa said this. She said, our progress in holiness depends on God and ourselves, on God's grace and on our will, our choice to be holy. So let me ask you very clearly, do you desire, do you desire holiness in your life? Because I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, the God that created the heavens and the earth desires that for your life. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, our God freely, freely gives every single one of us grace, freedom, and forgiveness to each one of us. It's nothing that we can do to earn it. It's a free gift that we receive in faith through Jesus Christ. Our preparation for action that I talked about at the very beginning is done in faith. It's done with the knowledge that God's grace is sufficient for you and for me and that God is the one that is preparing us. God is the one that is equipping us for the action that he has set for us. We see self-control come about in our lives. Not in our own strength, not in our own ability, but in the strength in Christ who is working in and through every single one of us through the power of his Holy Spirit. We see obedience grow because in faith we are walking as obedient children, subservient underneath the God that created the heavens and the earth. And in faith we receive that free gift of grace, freedom from the passions or the entanglement, and all of our stupidity that happened in our former way of living. And we know in faith, we know in faith that we are free. Free from the vomit of our former ways. Free from the vomit of alcoholism or drugs or pornography or you fill the blank for yourself. That we are free from the bondage of this grip that it has on us. Because grace is working in our hearts and it's working in our lives through Jesus Christ. And this all comes together to give us a beautiful picture of hope. Of hope for holiness. Holiness that comes about in your life and in my life through the grace of and by faith of Jesus Christ. Friend, preparation leads to self-control. Self-control leads to obedience. Obedience leads to holiness, and holiness only comes about through grace and by faith. Will you join me in prayer? Father, as we gather here in this place week in and week out, God, we all walk in with different baggage. We all walk in with different areas of our lives, God, that are struggles. And so, Father, today I, I know, I know that there are aspects of this message, God, that have hit people right between the eyes. And God, I know that you want them to experience the freedom, the freedom that we have in you from our evil former ways. And so, Father, I, I pray for those individuals here today whether secretly or publicly, are dealing with alcoholism, that, Father, today, they will lay that at the bottom, at the foot of your cross. That, God, they will lay that desire for more, for a buzz or whatever it is that brings them peace. That, God, they will lay that at the foot of your cross and that they will experience a peace, a peace that transcends all human understanding that can only come from you. And, God, as we come here, we all have different areas of our lives where sin is trying to seep in. Different areas of our lives where we might go back to that sin that we had repented from before. But even now, in the silence of our hearts, God, we repent again. We repent and we say, God, free us. Free us. Give us the freedom. Give us the forgiveness. Give us the grace that, God, you so freely give to us. And God, as we repent, we need to turn away. To not go back. Give us the boldness. Give us the self-control, God, to not go back to that vomit or that folly again. And Father, as we desire in each one of our hearts and each one of our lives, we desire to be those obedient children. 
We desire, God, in our obedience to see your holiness grow and manifest in our hearts and in our lives. God, we want to be a beautiful picture, a beautiful representative of who you are. And so, Father, do work in our hearts. Do work in our lives. God, may we leave from this place today changed people. Changed not because of any words you've given me, but changed because of the way you're working in their hearts and in their lives. Father, may they leave their former selves here today. May they leave those desires here. And God, may they go about their day this week shining so brightly for you, prepared for action, and equipped with self-control and sober living. God, we thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said,